Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States intelligence community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with the core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. This episode, we are joined by Tish Long, who served as the director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. She also served as deputy director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Tish held key leadership roles across the community as deputy undersecretary of defense for intelligence, deputy director of naval intelligence, executive director for intelligence community affairs, and the first CIO at DIA. She currently serves on many boards, including NSI's. Tish, welcome. We are excited to have you, and thanks for joining us. Megan, thanks for asking me to join you today. And I would like to say congratulations on this podcast series. It's pretty awesome. Thank you. We are really excited about it. To start us off, we would love for you to tell us a little bit about your career in the IC where you started, and how you rose to become the first woman to lead one of the big five intelligence agencies. Thanks, Megan. And I will tell you, my career in the IC was a bit unconventional for the times. And I'll tell you what I mean by that in a minute. I started as a co-op for the Navy, working at a Navy research lab, the David Taylor Research Center. Now, co-op is a work-study program where it takes you five years to get your four-year degree. And then I went back to work for David Taylor when I graduated from Virginia Tech with a degree in electrical engineering. And my first job, I built acoustic intelligence collection systems for submarines. So my early years were spent crawling around submarines, pulling cable, and installing and testing equipment. I even went to sea in the mid-80s for several days. And Megan, that was long before women in the Navy were allowed to even serve on submarines. So I did this for about six years. And then after that, um, I realized I was actually more interested in the data itself. And Naval Intelligence was actually our customer. So I went to work for Naval Intelligence. Now, I mentioned a little bit of a non-traditional career in the, in the intelligence community. Over the next six years at Naval Intelligence, um, I, I managed ACINT programs and other intelligence programs. And then I was promoted to a senior executive position. I was the first woman in Naval Intelligence to be promoted to the senior executive service. And I was the youngest at 34 years old. Then I promptly went on a rotational assignment to DIA to go to work for General Clapper. I was the first senior rotational. I did a joint duty assignment before joint duty was cool. In fact, it was 10 years before there even was a joint duty program. And that was the first of six such assignments. I changed jobs and I changed organizations every two to four years after that. So here's the non-traditional part. Most people spend their entire career in one organization, often in the same part of the organization. 
I worked for all of those different organizations. Let me tell you a little bit about um, each of those jobs because that's really, I think, what enabled me to become one of the community's firsts. When I left Naval Intelligence for DIA, one of the first things that I was asked to do was to go be a part of the NEMA transition team. NEMA, the National Imagery and Mapping Agency, was actually the first name for the agency that would become NGA. And I actually thought I had messed up because General Clapper was on record as saying he was adamantly opposed to the creation of this agency. So here I am working for him, and now I'm getting voluntold to go work on the transition team. Well, little did I know that both of us would later become the director of NGA. And I will tell you, I learned so much in those four months where we were standing up a new agency. Not very many people get the opportunity to create a new agency within the federal government. So when I finished that temporary assignment, I went back to DIA for a couple of years. And then, um, and, and a number of things that I did was create new things. We created the Joint Military Intelligence Program, the forerunner to the Military Intelligence Program. Then I was off to CIA and the community management staff, where I worked for Joan Dempsey, where we established the office of the Deputy Director of Central Intelligence for Community Management. She was the first DDCICM. That was the forerunner to the DNI's office. And creating a new office again, I took everything I learned in that NEMA transition team and even more. Next stop, back at Naval Intelligence as the deputy director. This was the summer of 2000, so July 2000. In August of 2000, the Russian submarine, the Kursk, sank. In October of 2000, the USS Cole was bombed. In April of 2001, the US EP-3 landed on Hainan Island. And of course, 9-11, 2001. And Naval Intelligence lost eight of our finest intelligence officers. All of that in the first 14 months was challenging and it created a lot of opportunities. We basically set ourselves on a course to really almost recreate Naval Intelligence and how Naval Intelligence could support the global war on terrorism. So a lot of change during those years. Then in, um, after about three years, I went to um, the Office of the Secretary of Defense to help establish the Under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence. Position had just been created by Congress. I was one of the first deputy undersecretaries. So once again, creating something new. From there to DIA, and then of course after that, NGA. So all of those positions really prepared me to be the director of NGA. That is quite a career, Tish. I I love the story about how the selection process um, for the NGA director role unfolded. Um, would you mind sharing with us that story? And was this a job you applied for or were you nominated for? So Megan, that's a great question. So let's start with those six jobs I just mentioned, where not only did I change jobs, I 
changed agencies or, or organizations. The only one that I actually applied for was the very first one when I applied to be a senior executive. After that, um, I was simply asked if I was interested in the position. Now, don't get me wrong, I interviewed for those jobs, but I never actually applied for them. Now, when I say my network helped me, my network you know, helped me find those, those positions, I worked hard. You know, I honed my skills as a program manager. I established my reputation as somebody who delivered. Um, and I worked hard at keeping my, my network active. So I'm at DIA now as the deputy director. And in my bio, you called out all those deputy director positions. I was a professional deputy director. And uh, I had been in the job for three years. I was the deputy to Lieutenant General Mike Maples. And then Ron Burgess was announced as the next DIA director. I had worked with Ron a couple of times previously. And he reached out to me and asked me if I would stay on as his deputy. And I just, you know, big sigh. And I said, of course I will, Ron, for one year. Because then four years in the job, that's long enough, you know. Previously, it was two to three years in any position. So Ron gets on board and we're, you know, we're, we're working. We're supporting two wars, the buildup, um, the surge in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, you know, extremely busy. But true to my word, at about six months, I told him I needed to start figuring out what my next job was going to be. And he could, you know, bring in another deputy. And Meg and I looked around and Every combat support agency, every director of an intelligence organization was a military officer, except, of course, at at CIA, State Department, Treasury. So I didn't see myself as a director. And I set about um, figuring out, as I said, my next job. As As the senior civilian at DIA, I was actually responsible for detailing the seniors all around the world. So I decided I was going to detail myself to London to be the senior DIA person in London. And that would be my last job. And that, you know, that would be wonderful. And then um, joint staff went out with a call for military nominations for the next director of NGA. And of course, not a secret. Everybody knows this is going on. Each of the military services nominate to the joint staff and um, chairman and the secretary don't see their perfect person. So the joint staff goes out again to all of the military services and asks for different nominations. And the word is, they're still not happy. And so I thought to myself, why not me? I've been a deputy at every level. I've worked at the national level, combat support agency and a military service on the OSD staff. Why not me? So I activated my network. I called Admiral Mullen, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. We had worked together on the Navy staff after 9-11. I called the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Haas Cartwright. We had worked together when I was at the community management staff. They both supported me. I called Robert Rangel, Secretary Gates's special assistant. And I knew because I had done the NEMA transition team that The NEMA legislation, the NGA legislation that established the organization allowed for a civilian director. And in fact, I also knew that Secretary Gates, 
who had been on the NEMA commission was the one personally responsible for inserting that language into the legislation. So Robert said, of course he would support you. Do you know General Clapper? I said, yeah, I kind of know General Clapper. And he said, well, you're going to need his support. I said, okay. So this is December of 2009. And I call and make an appointment to go see General Clapper, my good friend, General Clapper, my mentor, General Clapper. And, you know, it's before the holidays. It's quiet. There's not many people in the office. And I, you know, make the appointment under the guise of a mentoring session. And, you know, what am I going to do next? And we're sitting at his little table in his office and it's 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And I'm trying to work up the nerve to ask him about the NGA position. And I finally, you know, I, I tell myself it's now or never. And so I say, you know, Jim, what, what's going on with NGA? And Jim says, oh, you know, we've had two rounds of nominations and the secretary and the chairman, they just, they're not thrilled with any of them. And I just, I don't know what we're going to do. So I looked directly at him and I said, Jim, why not me? And he looked directly back at me and he said, Tish, why not you? That's a brilliant idea. Why didn't I think of that? And I thought to myself, I don't know, Jim, why didn't you think of that? <laughs> well, Megan... Jim's taken credit for that brilliant idea ever since, and I don't mind because I got the job. Yes, you did, and you were fabulous at it. Um, I think there are so many women in our community that find it unnatural and challenging to self-promote, um, especially in the professional context. What would you say to a listener who might be struggling to market herself for the next opportunity? Well, Megan, you just heard how hard it was for me and, you know, anyone would have said I was very successful at that point. And, you know, I, I will tell you, it's not only women in our community. I think it's a gender trait that we are so used to being team players. We advocate for others. It's just that, that that's who we are. But at the end of the day, sometimes you have to self-promote whether it's engaging your network to advocate on your behalf, which I did, or it is personally self-promoting or both. And I would say, if you are struggling to put yourself out there, ask yourself how you will feel when you are not considered for that dream job that you want. When you are not considered for that dream job that you know you can do, that you know you can excel at. How will you feel when someone else, probably less qualified, is selected for your dream job because you didn't self-advocate or because you didn't activate your network? So, so that's what I would say. Don't, don't let those opportunities pass you by. You don't know what the selecting official is actually looking for unless you are the selecting official. Um, so... Sometimes you are the best person to advocate for yourself. You know yourself the best, you know what you're capable of, um, and you know what you want to do. So, you know, it sounds like throughout your career, you, you definitely, even though that was a difficult thing for you to do to sit in, in front of your mentor and say, why not me? Um, but you still had the confidence, you know, to do so. And, and how do you 
feel your confidence manifest itself once you arrived at NGA with the director title? And how central was confidence in your leadership? Oh, I find that confidence is an attribute that's very central to anyone's leadership. We all want a leader who inspires us, inspires us to follow them, um, inspires us to do the best that we can. And I think that takes confidence. I certainly didn't have all the answers. And I can even think of other jobs that even the night before I was to report on my first day, I was calling friends saying, I'm not sure I can do this. I think I've made a mistake. Maybe I should call and say, you know, I'm not going to take this job. You know, we all have those moments of self-doubt. Um, that's part of what our network is for. And uh, um, so, so confidence, obviously, it, it, to me, it's central. In the director NGA job, I was actually very fortunate that I had almost six months to prepare for it. So I was able to talk to, for instance, all of the former directors and the former deputy directors and customers of the agency and current leadership and past leadership. So I was actually able to spend a lot of time preparing for the position. And I know that's not always the case that you, you know, have six months, but that said, you can work to prepare yourself. You can work to build up that confidence, you know, whether it's, you know, using your network or, you know, as I did, um, actually studying for the job, if you will. And again, I didn't have all the answers when I, when I walked in the door. And I'm not sure it's a good thing to ever think you have all the answers because a big part of being a leader is listening. And that's something that I always tried to do. I guess an, another thing that I would say is, you know, I had that six months. Um, Bob Murat, my predecessor, was just very gracious. He started including me in conversations, um, inviting me to key meetings. Um, he just would share anything and everything that he thought would be beneficial to me. And at the end of the day, beneficial to the agency because, you know, he, he wanted me to, to succeed as well. So a lot, a lot of folks I can thank um, that really helped me with my confidence and, and helped me be successful. So to continue on this thread of confidence, um, was there ever anything that you felt you lacked confidence in, or is there a skill that came more difficult to you? So lacked confidence or, you know, a difficult skill. Funny you should ask that question, Megan, um, because I actually debated whether or not I wanted to raise my hand for the NGA director job. You know, not just that it took me a while to get up my nerve to say, why not me? But even before that, did I want to raise my hand? Because I was very nervous about public speaking, something you might not believe now, but this is many years later. Um, and there is a lot of public speaking involved in being the head of any organization from a team to a 10,000 person um, agency. You know, a little, little side story. When I was growing up, I acted in community theater and, and all the way through high school. I was in the thespian society, you know, loved to be on stage. But the difference was you took on someone else's persona. 
you were acting. Well, in a leadership role, you're not acting. In fact, you know, that's, you can't be someone else. You know, being who you are is, is really important in a leadership position. And I, um, I, I really lacked that confidence in, in public speaking. And it was really um, both my husband and a dear friend who I've already mentioned, Joan Dempsey, that they both convinced me that I could overcome that. I could overcome the, the stage fright. And I did. And the way I did it was practice, practice, practice. I used to stand at the island in my kitchen with my, whether they were speeches or whether they were just talking points or slides for a briefing. And I would stand at the island and I would practice. I would actually give my speeches. My two cats didn't find them very interesting. My husband was always in a different room. But just standing up like you have an audience and practice, 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 it worked for me. Um, and I will tell you, when I stepped on that stage for the change of director ceremony, was I nervous? Of course I was. Did I feel confident? Yes. And I continued to build that confidence over the four years that I was director. That's surprising to me. And I think it's going to be surprising to others because I, for one, look up to you as a as uh, someone that um, is a fabulous public speaker. And uh, I'm always in awe when you get on stage because it seems so natural to you. So to hear that, you know, that was something you struggled with um, is, is, you know, surprising to me. But I, I love that it's all about preparation and, you know, just you know, getting, getting through that and being prepared and having the confidence to say, look, if I practice and I come prepared, it's going to be okay. So thank you for sharing that. Well, and Megan, you still work with me today. So before an INSA event, before one of our AWIC, you know, planning committees, um, I, I'm practicing. I'm going through my remarks, whether it's paper in front of me or, or, you know, in my mind. And I will have thought about it for days in advance. So I still prepare. So we're going to shift gears a little bit. You mentioned AWIC just then. And uh, as many of our listeners might not know, you were one of the founding members of AWIC. What was the purpose in creating AWIC? And why has it been a support system to you? And why is it important to you? Megan, quite simply, AWIC for me is about giving back. I had and I still have an amazing career. I had and I still have a lot of mentors and supporters who made all of those opportunities available to me. You know, you may recall I had just retired as the conversations um, about AWIC started. And for once I had some free time. I had the ability to, you know, really um, volunteer and, um, you know, time to devote to a passion of mine, which is helping other women, which is helping other women navigate the intelligence community to understand the unwritten rules. And AWIC has evolved into such an incredible support system. I personally have met so many talented women that I never would have met otherwise and have been exposed to so many women with different backgrounds that I wouldn't have had the opportunity 
uh, to meet previously. I've been able to connect women to women, women to opportunities. I mean, you know, Megan, we talk about this from women who have been trying to break into the IC, whether it's on the industry side or on the government side, just making introductions and they take it from there. And so it's just really nice to be able to create opportunities for others the way opportunities were created for me. Well, I don't know if many people know this, but you created the first opportunity for me. So thank you for that. That one was easy. So Tish, if you don't mind me asking, why not you for the next opportunity? Why not me for the next opportunity? Megan, I think that falls into the category of never turn down a job you haven't actually been offered. Fair enough. So we like to end each episode with the same question. Um, In keeping with the name of the podcast, Iron Butterfly, if you had to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? That one's actually pretty easy because uh, one of my bosses along the way gave me a nickname. So I'll, I'll say that's my code name. The Velvet Hammer. We'll save the story for another episode of the Iron Butterfly podcast. You're going to leave a cliffhanger? Well, okay. So the Velvet Hammer. I mentioned that one of my bosses uh, gave me that moniker. I was the Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Policy Requirements and Resources. And we were, I was responsible for updating all of the combat support agency charters, writing all the new policies, um, gathering requirements from the combatant commands and other customers, and then responsible for the, the, the resources. We established the military intelligence program. We made the decision on what was in the program, what was not in the program. And then over the ensuing years, um, you know, made the decisions or teed up the decisions for the Deputy Secretary of Defense to make on um, what programs would continue, what programs would get funded, at what level. And um, I got pretty good at justifying those tough decisions, uh, breaking the news um, to four stars and three stars and program managers, and actually making them feel okay after I would terminate or cut one of their programs. So that's how I got named the Velvet Hammer. I love that. And a perfect way to end this episode. Tish, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Um, Thank you for sharing your stories about your incredible life and career in the IC. And uh, we hope to see you next time. Well, Megan, thanks so much for including me in this. As I said at the beginning, congratulations. It's a terrific podcast. I've had a lot of fun listening to the first couple of episodes, and I look forward to many more episodes. So thank you very much. Thanks, Tish. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. 
If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we'd like to thank Grant Haver for production assistance. Stay fierce, and we'll talk next time.